0: Standard of Paranormal Radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So it's been busy for us here at the Paracast. Last week we had just a fascinating episode with Stan Gordon. Stan, of course, lives in western Pennsylvania. And he has been exploring the strange and the unknown for many thousands of years. And he has a wealth of cases going back to the 60s in Kecksburg. And you just say with Stan, what's next? And you sit back and you hang out. And he's got reports that are just, just incredible. So we're going to do something really different this week. Jeff Bellinger is back on the Powercast, And I read something from the prologue of his latest book. It's just after three in the morning. And I'm as cold as I've ever been in my life. I'd estimate we're about the 18,000-foot level. I can't breathe. I'm fighting for every molecule of oxygen. Jeff, I was feeling fright because I don't like heights. (laughs) I'm afraid of heights. I'm reading this book, and I'm saying, oh, my God, I am so happy I didn't do that, but you did. (laughs) You dare to write a book about it because you recovered
2: Yeah, I did. Spoilers, I didn't die.
1: (laughs) Well, you see, on this show, the Paracast, you never know.
2: No, right. That's right. This would be like the most amazing, compelling EVP ever, right? Or not. It's just my experience. Yeah, so um, Kilimanjaro, it was the most spiritually and physically transformative experience of my life. I did it. In fact, four years ago today, I was on the mountain. It was one of these things that you think about. I thought about it anyway my whole life. I mean, growing up in the 80s, remember Toto's song, Africa, right? Um, that, that great song.
1: That and had an amazing, an amazing drum track. Yeah. yeah. There yeah. is a young woman from Germany, Sina, and she does covers of spectacular drum tracks. And you see her doing this one for the Toto drum track. And you watch what she's doing because it's shown in detail with multiple cameras. And that is just amazing.
2: Yeah, it's a great song. It holds up because it's got covered by Weezer and everything else. But there's a line in that song, and I remember it even as a kid. You know, sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti, right? And so I I heard about Kilimanjaro my whole life, and I, I was a hiker. I started hiking around college and then after college. And I love the idea of just kind of getting up into mountains and um, getting away from civilization for just a little bit. It's, it's weird how things sort of conspire or transpire. I don't even know both, really, along the way to kind of get you at a specific place. Um, in college, we were talking just before we started about taking foreign language. I took French because my last name, Belanger, which is Belanger in French, Um, But I've I've been in America so long, like my great grandparents were born in America, it became Belanger. And so uh, I took French and failed. I took Spanish, it was too close to French. I was getting confused. And I I asked a friend, you know, I, I have a language requirement for graduating. And they said, take Swahili, the professor's amazing. And I said Swahili. Where do they even speak that? She said Eastern Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Ghana, that area. And I went, Oh, that sounds weird. Let's do it. And I took French, and the prep professor was amazing. I ended up taking four classes with this guy. Gene, you're old enough. I don't mean to date you, but you're old enough to know who he is. Not necessarily who this professor is, but you'd know his background. His name's Dr. Robert Leonard. The first day of class, I knew his background before, but. Uh, we sit down in class and, and someone kind of sheepishly puts their hand up and, and it, he smiles, almost like knowing what's coming. And they said, Dr. Leonard, is it true you were the the founder of the band Sha Na <laughs> And he smiles and he puts the syllabus down and he says, OK, let's do this now. Sha Na, the doo-wop group from the, the 60s and had the TV show in the, the 70s and 80s. Well, I so, remember Bowser. Bowser. Everyone remembers Bowser. He was not Bowser, <laughs> but um, but everyone remembers Bowser. This guy was the co-founder of Sha Na, performed at Woodstock right before Jimi Hendrix hello, who could say that? When they got the TV series, he's like, I I can't take this anymore. I'm going to Kenya to kind of find myself and uh, teach English. And so he did that. He learned Swahili, came back and he's this amazing linguist. All these things sort of transpired. But um, you you go through your life thinking about things on your bucket list and things you want to do. But then you get a wake up call sometimes. For me, that happened when my brother-in-law, Chris, got sick with cancer. And that started around 2013. It was October, as a matter of fact. He was 44 years old at the time. He was losing some weight, Had was going through some st- strange stomach issues. He goes to the doctor. They get tests. They get more tests. And the doctor calls him one day at work and says, Chris, whatever you're doing, just stop and come down here right now. Don't make an appointment. Don't wait for you know the, the day to end. Just get here now. And he knows that's not good. Doctors don't do that ever. And so he gets to the doctor's office and the doctor tells him, Chris, you've got tumors. They're fully metastasized. Stage four, it's everywhere. You've got 18 to 24 months to live. It's a shock to all of us because no one saw that coming from like a few stomach issues to stage four cancer at 44. I mean, who sees that, right? And so we sort of rallied around Chris. Chris, funny guy, you know, always liked having him around at family events and stuff like that. And I always figured, well, we'll we'll get closer one day, you know, um, smart guy. But facing a two year death sentence, you suddenly realize we're not going to have time to get closer. And it's a funny thing, right, Gene, about two years? Two years is like a long time and not a long time, simultaneously. It it exists in two equal states at the same time. It, It comes up quicker than you think. And so Chris starts going through this process, the chemo, the radiation, this process of dying. Let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. And he calls me and he says, Jeff, I know you're a paranormal guy. And I am. I mean, that's my background, ghosts and haunted places and legends. And he says you're into some weird stuff. And I said, yeah, that's fair. I definitely am into some weird stuff. And he said, I'm going through something pretty weird. And I said, yeah, that's true. That's definitely true as well. And so he and I started talking a lot about this whole process of dying. My sister was sort of checked out on the whole thing. She was sort of in denial, didn't want to think about it. They had a a three-year-old kid at the time of the diagnosis. Just thinking about, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to be a single mother. My kid's not going to have a father. All these horrible things that you can imagine you might think of. And Chris and I started talking a lot about this death and dying. About a year of time, he was pretty depressed in a pretty dark place. But then after a year, he starts to kind of come out of it and accept what's happening to him as his body's just all the while degrading, you know, as he's losing weight and it's getting worse. And all the time we're talking a lot and it's really nice. And, and I'm thinking, why didn't we talk like this years ago? And maybe it's because, you know, we were waiting for this. I don't know. I, I, you, you second guess everything when you're faced with something as inevitable and profound and horrible as a forthcoming loss. And... um that, that that later that fall now we're into 2015 I got tickets to a football game preseason it's all I could afford but I got tickets to the Patriots Giants preseason game and Chris is a longtime Giants fan and I'm a Patriots fan and I had to take him in, in a wheelchair uh, to the stadium and so um you know run him in in a wheelchair then run the wheelchair back to the car and then do it all in reverse and funny thing about cancer is that when you're when you love someone who's going through cancer, they get reduced to numbers. They get reduced to you know these markers are up or those markers are down, and you're just numbers, numbers, numbers. And it was nice to just spend a few hours at a football game, just being two guys watching football instead of a guy with cancer. Um, so that was a nice break because after that, he kind of went downhill quickly. And um, in December, he had to go into the hospital because his organs are starting to fail. And he calls me, and he said, Jeff, I, I, something really weird happened. I want to talk to you about it. And I said, what happened? He said, last night, I, I, was, I had an out-of-body experience. I, what do you mean? What happened? He said, I was 20 feet over my bed, which makes no sense, because the ceiling of the hospital room couldn't be any more than maybe 10 feet.
1: Jeff, let's do our break Go now. It.
2: Do it. Jeff okay.
1: Bollinger, author of The Call of Kilimanjaro, Finding Hope Above the Clouds. With Gene and Randall, you're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, the paracast.plus. Prices are just 50 a week less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the paracast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus.
4: Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Youngevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to TeamGaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's TeamGaday.com with Younggevity. TeamGaday.com.
5: Is your child defiant, independent, annoyingly inquisitive? After a long, hard day of following the rules, who wants to deal with troublesome kids? 49% of children suffer from Oppositional Defiant Disorder, or ODD. Symptoms of ODD include independent thought, rampant creativity, and failure to submit to authority. But now there's a solution. The good people at Pilfer can help you with their time-release once-daily capsule. Compliason. Your child won't be able to form his own opinions, let alone express them. It maintains your child's ability to go to a state-run school and perform simple tasks around the house. You won't have to worry about parenting, and the school won't have to deal with your kid asking questions. Compliason. You'll go from this. Quit
6: telling me what to do! Quit telling me what to do! Quit telling, me what to do! Quit telling me
7: what to do! To this. Good morning, Mother. I love going to school. And this week we're learning all about how the government is our federal family and they're here to help us. Compliason.
8: I can help you too. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com.
1: We are going to take a trip into the mountains. Now it's going to be one that will be virtual because he did it, Jeff Belanger. I did not because I'm afraid of heights. You know, 100 feet is too much for me. I don't dig it. But now we're talking about your brother-in-law. Yes. And your brother-in-law is suffering from stage four cancer. Yeah. And we were at the point where you were going to a preseason football game. And let's move to this experience he had out of body. Go on. Yeah.
2: So it's December of 2015. And Chris has to go into the hospital because his organs are are failing him. And he calls me maybe the second day there. And he says, uh, I got to tell you about this thing that happened last night. And he said, I suddenly realized I was out of my body, looking down at myself. And I said, what happened? He said, I was 20 feet above my body looking down. And he said, I know that doesn't make sense because the, the ceiling of the hospital room couldn't be more than 10 feet. And I was double that. And he said, but there I was. I said, what happened? What'd you do? He said, I'm afraid of heights <laughs> like Eugene. He said, I, I was scared and it was over. It was over in just a second. And I said, oh, okay, uh, that's interesting. And then he called me the day after that. And he said, OK, it's, it's happening again. Now it's more than once a day. I'm not as scared anymore. I'm just sort of out. And I said, what, what, do, you, what do you do? What's happening? And he said, I'm just very aware that I am outside of my body looking down at it. And then I can sort of move around a little bit. He's like, I just sort of let the experience be what it'll be. I don't try to force anything. It's, it's just that. And then after about a week in the hospital, the doctors tell him there's, there's nothing more they can do. It's it's time to go home to hospice care, and that's a tough thing to hear for everybody, right? Because you know what that means. It means that 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 just they said your your organ failure is imminent. So uh, they got a hospital bed for Chris and his room, and an oxygen machine, and, and a hospice nurse, and things like that. And just all you can do at this point is just try to make him comfortable. I remember. It was maybe the the 16th or so of December, uh, maybe 15th. I was going down to Connecticut where he lives. And it's hard when you know you're going to a a visit like this and you know what it is. You know what it means. This is this is the last time I'm going to see him. It's abundantly clear. And uh, and we sat and we talked for like three hours. And it was one of the most profound conversations I've had in my life and we talked about everything. My sister wasn't there. She was going to leave the house and go do some grocery shopping and things while, while I was there, and, which is fine. She doesn't want to hear it anyway. And, but Chris knew he could talk to me about these, these crazy things because of my background. And uh, I said, uh, are you still having the out-of-body experiences? And he said, yeah, now, all, all day long. It's happening again and again, multiple times. And I said, okay. And, and he said, but now I'm seeing things. I said, what do you mean seeing things? He said, well, first I saw my cat from childhood. And I went, oh. I, and he said, the weirdest thing is he said, I never even liked that cat. <laughs> but there it was. I said, okay. And I said, um, anything else? He said, well, I, I saw my grandmother. And he was close with his grandmother. I said, did she say anything? Did you do anything? And he said, no, she was just There. And uh, he said, I, I don't know what it means, just that she was there. I said, well, what do you think all these out-of-body experiences mean, these, these things that have been going on for the last couple of weeks now? And he said, I feel like there's something inside this broken machine that's getting ready to get out and stay out. And uh, he wanted to tell me that. And he wanted me to tell my sister when she was ready to hear it. By the way, she still isn't ready to hear it. I've tried. But he wanted me to tell others, which is why I'm telling you and why I I, I put it in my book. Chris, I wouldn't have called him an atheist when I met him, devout agnostic, maybe borderline atheist. But near the end of his journey, he got so deeply spiritual because of this thing that he was going through. And after, you know, a year plus of horrible depression after getting the diagnosis, to see him gets so enlightened at the end was really encouraging. And I remember when I walked into the room that day and uh, his skin was, was completely yellow from jaundice, but the sun was shining through the windows and hitting his skin and he, he was glowing golden in color, Jean, golden. And I know no human being is supposed to look like that. And my cerebral brain knows it's because there's toxins that are not getting removed by his kidneys and by his liver. And that's what's causing this color. But he was so at peace. And those those next few days, everyone who cared about him got to see him. And it was nothing but compassion and um, no grudges, no negativity at all. And then on the 20th of December, he um, he passed away. And, um, that was, uh, that was hard for all of us. And so I thought back to that conversation about how I, I was looking at him and going, this guy is dying. He's dying right in front of me. And then I realized, you know what? I'm dying too. I mean, sure. Not as quickly as Chris, but I've been dying since the day I was born. And he's just a couple years older than me. And so you, it's those things sort of hit you. It's this wake up call like, wait a minute, I don't know how long I have. I don't know when I'm going to get that call from my doctor that, hey, man, you know, sorry that you got a death sentence now. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like one of these these wake up calls that that we get when we lose someone close to us. And so uh, so fast forward about eight months after his death and I was doing a paranormal event where uh, we were bringing people into this historic haunt in Massachusetts, and we were uh, you know, raising money for the historic preservation and things like that, and my friend Amy from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, she's there, and she says, hey Jeff, we're doing another fundraiser, and I did this light the night walk for them a couple years earlier where you, you literally walked two miles in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, holding a balloon with a little glow stick in it, and um, people were very generous. I think we raised like $1,000 to fight blood cancer, and so she's like, we've got a new thing. And I said, Amy, I'm so busy. I got so much going on. I'll help if I can. But, you know, and she said, we're climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And I just stopped dead in my tracks. And I said, OK, when? She said, March 2017. I said, OK, how much? And she told me it was a lot of money, but not a, not a staggering amount. And um, I said, so cross this big item off my bucket list, raise money for cancer research Do this in memory of my brother-in-law that had just died months ago. And I don't know, Gene, the the universe doesn't put too many things on a golden platter for you like that too often. And there was nothing to say to her, but I'm in. Let's do this.
1: Let me ask you uh, a little bit of a background here. You've hiked. Have you ever climbed any mountains before?
2: So uh in New England sure so the tallest mountain in New England is is Mount uh, Washington which is about 6400 feet in elevation and um it's a great mountain. I've, I've done it multiple times and I've done other mountains that are 4,000 footers, 3,000 footers. Uh, and again, these are hiking, you know, you, it's, it's, um, it's, it's not like precariously hanging from cliffs with, with, you know, ropes and things like that. It's just, you gotta be able to just get yourself to the top. And I knew Kilimanjaro was one of the tallest mountains that you can hike. It's not a technical climb. You can, you can walk to the top. And, um, Sort okay
1: we're gonna we're gonna start climbing a mountain folks yes i will of course cover my eyes when we do this <laughs> jeff jean and randall you're in the paracast
7: thank you for listening to gcn be sure to visit GCNLive.com today
10: USA Radio News
11: with Dan Naraki. China has announced sanctions against two members of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom in retaliation for American sanctions levied because of China's human rights violations against ethnic religious minorities. Gail Manchin, the chair of the USCIRF, and vice chair Tony Perkins have been banned from entering mainland China, Hong Kong, or Macau. The Chinese foreign ministry also announced sanctions against a Canadian member of parliament for similar criticisms of the Chinese regime. The USC IRF has been one of the leading voices in a global effort demanding an end to China's abuses against the Uyghur people in the traditionally Muslim region of Xinjiang. And the Department of Justice says that it has charged nearly 500 people with COVID-related fraud. In a statement, the department said that over 140 defendants are facing charges for unemployment insurance fraud, and another 120 have been charged with defrauding the Paycheck Protection Program, intended to help keep small businesses afloat during the pandemic. This is USA Radio News. Former President Donald Trump has some harsh criticism for the current administration over President Biden's handling of illegal immigration. In an interview with Fox News on Saturday, Trump said that he'll likely visit the southern border in the next few weeks because many in the Border Patrol have invited him down. He also criticized President Biden for ending the Remain in Mexico policy that he established with Mexico and ending construction of the border wall when it was so close to completion.
6: The wall is just uh, a few weeks away from being completed. He didn't want to complete it. It took two and a half years to start because uh, the Congress, the Democrats in Congress, Pelosi and everybody sued us 11 different times. So after we won all the lawsuits we started, they should finish the wall number one, and they should have the stay in policy reinserted, because if you don't have that, this is going to be a disaster. This is
11: USA
12: Radio News. health insurance hotline today learn how this 10-minute call can help you get lower health insurance rates this is a free service to help consumers learn the laws to help them qualify for lower health insurance rates so call right now to learn more 800-670-0946 800-670-0946 call 800-670-0946 800-670-0946
13: this is micah hanks of the grayling report and you're listening to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio
1: jeff belanger author of the call of kilimanjaro he's telling us about the plans to climb a mountain now I wasn't going to ask this, but I'm going to ask. I decide I want to climb a mountain. I'm crazy. My life has changed. (laughs) and I really want to do this. You have to get a guide and everything. But what does it cost me? I want to go climb a mountain like that. What's it going to cost me to do it? Yeah,
2: no, that's fair. We were told, by the way, about $4,500 plus the plane ticket. And $4,500 covers the hotel in Moshi, Tanzania, covers the guides, the food, uh, everything. But you also need the gear, which would cost close to another 1000 and the plane ticket, which was like another 1000 Realistically, all in, I would say closer to $7,000 is what this trip would cost when it was all said and done, about $7,000. let us see.
1: I can buy a Mac Pro for that, kind of modestly <laughs> equipped. Okay. I'm just thinking yeah. of what I can get instead of climbing a mountain and scaring myself to death. I understand here, I live in and around the Phoenix area. Yep. I can go to, say, what, Sedona, riding a highway between cliffs. I sure. hate doing that. I've done it a few times. I won't do it anymore. If someone wants to drive me, I'll do it. I'll wear goggles or something or blindfolds. I don't want to do it anymore. I prefer the Stargate. The Stargate is simple. You simply go in the Stargate, and you go through the wormhole. You come out 10 seconds later, and you're in another galaxy. Forget about the (laughs) Mount Kilimanjaro. I also think, as you were talking about this, we'll get into more of the trip in a second, the mountain climbing scene from The Princess Bride. (laughs) Right. Okay? All right? Yep. Carrie Elwes and Mandy Patankin. And Andre the Giant and Wallace Shawn. Yes. Yeah. Robin Wright.
2: Wright. Yes, Robin Wright. Who knew? She was. Yeah, that's right.
1: And it was directed uh, by Meathead himself, Rob Reiner. That's right.
2: Yeah. we one of the forget the iconic movies. Yeah. No, it wasn't like that. We weren't crawling up a cliff face. Well, there was one part, the Barranca Wall, that was a little bit like that. But uh, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it's funny. I'm not a huge fan of heights either. But when I'm on a mountain, I don't feel that. Uh, on a building, I do. It's man-made. It feels like it could fall. But a mountain doesn't ever feel like it could fall to me. So I guess it's it's a little bit different.
1: Let me give you the psychic phenomenon before we get on.
2: Sure.
11: Okay.
1: 2001, you get the connection. Yep. And this is summer of 2001. The wife, myself, my son, Grayson, were visiting New York. Mm-hmm. And I've been to the World Trade Center before. So you see where this is going. Yeah, sure do. Yeah. And... I tolerated it. I went to the tower. You have to go up the elevator and then you go up an escalator. I remember this. So climb the elevator and then I was nervous as anything. I couldn't go on. I couldn't take that escalator. So Barbara and Grayson went up there and I sat at a coffee shop on that last level of the elevator before you get to the escalator. And I couldn't take it. I couldn't wait until we left that building. Not just... Went downstairs, went down the elevator to the ground floor, but left that building before I felt comfortable. This was maybe, I don't know, a month or two before 9-11. I don't say that there was anything there that I perceived something happening. Maybe it's just one of those things.
2: No, I don't know. You're right, I, I, but I, I get that feeling in tall buildings too. I'm not totally comfortable in them uh, because they're again they're man-made, and and things can happen. And of course, now with terrorism and things like that. But I, I, I don't have that same feeling when I'm on a mountain. It doesn't matter how high. It's just so solid under my feet that I don't I don't have the same fear I do that if when I'm in like a, a really tall building.
1: Well, you don't uh, have am- to worry that the construction was done by the lowest bidder That's right. or, the, or the construction company that bribed the city or the town council to get a building permit. You don't have to worry right. about that. No. Nope. It's Mother Nature doing it, and it's either going to work or it's not.
2: Well, let me add one more wrinkle to Mount Kilimanjaro. It is indeed a volcano, and it's dormant. It is not extinct. So there's that. <laughs> You know, you think about it, it crosses your mind that if this thing goes off as fast as I can run, just wouldn't make a difference. (laughs) It hasn't gone off in a couple hundred years. So, again, spoilers. It didn't go off when I was there and I survived.
1: Well, otherwise, this would be a fascinating book. Not (laughs) that that it's not fascinating. That would be one of the few books that came from the afterlife.
2: Yes. Or, yeah, uh, alleged to. I've I've read a book or two that uh, claims to be dictated by spirits tough to tell. But, um, you know, yeah. besides, how do you know? How do you know? You know, I'm
1: in the afterlife. I am now looking down at you and I see what you're doing. And here's my book because right. I couldn't get it published while I was alive. But if I say it came from the afterlife, it'll get more credibility. I'll get a publisher. Please go on with your story.
2: Yeah. Well, just one more point on that. I figure like any grammatical errors or spelling errors, you can just blame the spirits. Right, You could be like well, oh, that wasn't me that was that that comma should have been there. It was dictated by the spirits, yeah, but that okay. doesn't remove the obligation of having
1: an editor that's on right. this plane of existence, yes, it, to edit is divine
2: for sure, for sure, for sure, yeah, so, you so speak um, for yourself <laughs> so where are we at this point? You've gotten the trip funded, yes,
1: you're yes, gonna so go there, you got get you got the guide, yep, so when you're it. ready to do this thing now. Let's it's, go through this experience a little bit. I'm sure. looking at the photograph,
2: by the way, above the clouds, and I say, you know what? Still don't dig it. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I, I understand. It's not for everyone. So when we get there, uh, Tanzania, it's it's beautiful, and yet the poverty is extreme. We're staying in a town called Moshi, and we had the chance the day before we started to actually Climb the mountain. It's going to take six days to get to the top and two days to get back down. But we had the chance to go to a place called the Amani Center, which is for street children. And these kids, man, like, you know, some of them were literally in rags on the street and, and picked up and, and had a place to go. And it was pretty cool to sort of like make this local offering. It just felt important. You know, we, we got to play soccer with them and we emptied our wallets. And you realize I, I've, I've never felt like a rich white guy before going to Tanzania. I've been in other countries before where I know that I I have more money than most people there, but this was the first time I felt like a rich white guy. I am a white guy here. I wouldn't be considered rich, but there for sure I was, there's just no question. And that was, that was sort of eye opening as well. Um, so we, we, it was a Monday when we start this, this journey, we get dropped off at a place called the Lamoshi route. And there's 12 of us that are climbing for the leukemia lymphoma society and literally 48 guides, porters, cooks, people that are going to help us get a whole village. That's going to help us get up this mountain, um, carrying tents and food and supplies. Cause there's nothing. Once you get started, it's 42 miles of, of, uh, until you get back down on the other side. And we're probably 50 yards up the trail before I realized like oh my gosh, we're underway. I was going to take a picture of that first step or, you know, or, or something or video, anything. And we're, pro- we're 50 yards up the trail. And I went, well, we started, we've begun. I, I I missed it. And I realized how scattered I am. I'm thinking about back home and the emails I'm missing in the work and all this other stuff. And um, But then it, it slowly sort of comes into focus. Like, you know, when you come out of a movie theater on a bright afternoon and the, you're just blinded by the bright light and slowly it just, comes down to focus. And that's sort of how the Africa's feeling. I mean, this is the rainforest and the the ferns and stuff look a little bit familiar, but then there's these big trees that look so different. And then, and then our guide shows us up, up ahead in a tree and we see monkeys <laughs> and it's I'm like, wow, monkeys. I mean, I've seen monkeys in the zoo and I've seen pictures, but I'm on their turf now. And it occurs to you, you know, like, wait a minute, if they want to jump on my face and, and rip it off, uh, there's nothing stopping them. And so um, so that was that was a, a new kind of experience. And we're going so slow. pole pole. they say in Swahili. It just means slow, slow. And just walking this this path that's well groomed. It's not that challenging yet. It's literally a walk in the park until we get to our first camp. And we're about... Okay, okay. It's
1: not a walk in the park, or maybe it is. But we're talking about the call of Kilimanjaro, Jeff Belanger, psychic ghost hunting investigator, talking about a trip that, to me, is certainly paranormal. With Gene and Randall and Jeff, you're in... The
0: (laughs) Paracast.
16: If there's a sudden disaster, and you can't get to the grocery store, or they're all out of food, what would you do? You'll wish you had emergency food to get you through the crisis, and that's why we're here. We're MyPatriotSupply.com, America's leading source of emergency food. Our food lasts for up to 25 years, and millions of families trust us for their disaster survival. Won't you join us? Unlike other food companies, we don't skimp on calories. Our meals give you more than 2,000 calories per day. Why? Because that's what you need to survive any challenging crisis. And right now, you can save $200 on our popular 3-month emergency food kit. Just go to MyPatriotSupply.com and place your order. We ship fast, 2-3 to days max, and your food arrives discreetly right to your door. So order today and save $200 at MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com.
6: Hi, this is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Jeff, Gene Randall, we're talking about Jeff's trip. And now you haven't really gone up way up at the mountain yet, but you're no. in the early stages of this great
2: journey. Please continue. So, thank you. Yeah. So we're, we're at the first camp, a place called Mti Makubwa, which means big tree in Swahili. And I would rather cut off a finger than camp. By the way, um, it's not my idea of a good time. I'll hike all day long, uh, you know, from sun up till sundown, get sweaty and dirty. But then I want a shower and a hotel bar and a big feather bed. That's my preference. But there's no other way we have to camp. I've got this it's self-inflating mattress pad that you put under your sleeping bag. And I'm like, how's that going to keep a 195 pound man off the dirt ground below? The only thing I to- worry
1: about with long hikes, what do you do about deodorant?
2: Oh, I had deodorant, but you don't shower, and and they have these things. It's amazing what you learn. These wipes, it's like a, you, you it's it's like a, you know, like wet wipes for babies or whatever, but it, they're a little bit bigger, and you just wipe your body down, and that's the closest you're going to get to a shower while you're out there.
1: Probably it's, in terms of cleaning yourself, it's probably just about as good.
2: Yeah, it's you know, it is what it is. And you just got to sort of accept that this is this is your life right now. So that night, yeah, hardly slept. Very uncomfortable on the ground. I'm not used to it. But the next day, we, we start off early, and it's a crisp morning, and we're getting higher and higher up. And as you get above the tree line, once we cross, cross 10,000 feet, the trees get smaller and smaller until they're not there anymore. And the colors get muted, and the air gets thinner, and you start to sort of feel this – that there's less oxygen around. I haven't seen the summit in two days, but finally we come around this corner and there's the summit, the the tallest part of Kilimanjaro, there across the plain. And it's the closest I've ever seen it. And I'm just giddy, right? I mean, I feel like, imagine you're in a bar and your favorite celebrity of all time just happens to walk in while you're there. And that's how I felt. Just like, there it is. There it is. Oh my God, there it is. That camp the second night is a place called Shira One Camp. Kilimanjaro is actually three volcanoes and it dates back a million years. So the earliest volcano was this one, Shira, the, the one we're standing on. This, this plane used to uh, formerly be the top of a, a volcano. That went off and it was active for about 250,000 years. And then another one, a place called Muenze Peak went off and that's on the other side of it. And then Kilimanjaro was 460,000 years ago, the biggest part in the middle. And so we're on this plane. And I got to tell you, once the sun set, I have never in my life seen a starry sky like that. Never. And I'm, I'm a stargazer. I love to be outside and just gaze at the stars. And, and we're on this big plane. So if you tilt your head up, you see nothing but the stars. There's no light pollution. There's no pollution pollution. The air is so clean. And you're above 10,000 feet. And there's the Milky Way. There's the Southern Cross. The stars are the brightest I've ever seen in my entire life. And I'm just like a fool with my mouth open. Just, oh my God, I'm in space. When you tilt your head back, you're in it. You're absolutely in it. And it was incredible to see stuff like that. But the other thing that, that struck me, especially once we got about two days into this, is this strange feeling of stillness that I started to get. Because I, I haven't checked email. I don't have, there's no cell service. There's no Wi-Fi. There's nothing. I realized I'm starting to finally disconnect from that world back home. And that was a side effect I did not anticipate.
1: That, that's an interesting mindset because we think about the fact that, and you're a young whippersnapper, but mm-hmm. I grew up, I grew up, kind of the mindset here, and you're, you're a young whippersnapper, Jeff, so of course you saw this to some degree, but not to the degree that I did. I grew up, it was an analog Landline phone. Sure. If I wanted to call somebody outside of my city, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. If I even wanted to call outside of Brooklyn, I had to pay a per minute rate to call someone in Manhattan, someone in the Bronx. I suppose you get the picture. I mean, talk about being nickel and dimed. I had to pay long distance charges of maybe a couple of bucks a minute. And so I wanted to call my friends as a teenager, my fellow paranormal followers around the country. Suddenly my parents would have a $100 bill. And remember in 1965, a $100 bill was real money. Yeah. So, So it was quite different. So of course you're now climbing Kilimanjaro and you're in a situation here where suddenly you're without all of these accessories of modern life that have become indispensable, like me going to sleep and next to me is my iPhone. Right? Who could have thunk it? Go ahead, please.
2: No. So that was one of the moments after about two days on the mountain, I started to realize that there's this stillness, this really peaceful stillness that I wasn't worried so much about home. I wasn't worried about the emails I'm missing, the work I'm missing. I'm, I'm sort of And it's so quiet up there, too. Um, Once you get above the tree line, there's no animals. There's no nothing. There's no jets flying overhead. There's no cars that you can hear, no city noise, nothing. The only sound is whatever sound the wind makes when it hits you or or the the underbrush nearby. And that quiet and stillness, uh, I would come to realize in the coming days, is starting to sort of seep into me. And that was a byproduct that I just did not anticipate, that wow, this is nice. I feel this, like, this strange reset happening um, slowly. And you just sort of notice that I, I, I'm not reaching for my phone. I'm not looking for it. I don't care. It's, I don't need it. I have what I need. What I need is in my backpack. I've got some snacks and a, a rain shell, and I've got some layers of clothing, and I've got water, and I've got pictures of my family, and I've got pictures of my brother-in-law, Chris, and my nephew, and that's what I need. And, and I'm just a human being walking in, in walking in the world. And what's what's amazing, too, is I start to realize, you, you know, that our, our earliest human ancestors started walking out out of Africa, not too far from where I am. You know, like that was that's where it all started. If you go far enough back and I, and I suddenly feel this like connection to where I am, that this is where I'm supposed to be. You're and coming a, home. You know, you're coming home again. Yeah, coming up to the very the, the roots of the roots, man, all the way back. And, uh, and it was really, that was a special feeling. And it, and it carried with me for days. You know, as, as we, we get further up the mountain, it, it's almost like this mantra, right? You're just walking, you're breathing, and you're being. When the air gets thinner, and it's a strange thing, you know, once you get like 12,000 feet, 13,000 feet, you, it, it's like taking a drinking straw, And put it in your mouth and just breathe through that but now like go sprint down the street just breathing through the straw and it's so hard to get enough air in um that's what it feels like and it's scary when you stop because it takes so long to recover you're you're you know you're there's just not much oxygen up there and it gets thinner and thinner the higher you go
1: i assume uh, you carry something with you in case you can't breathe
2: yeah, the our guides did have oxygen. Um, none of us needed it. We were fortunate. None of us uh, had to resort to the to the supplemental oxygen. But yeah, it was there just in case. Um, these guys were pretty well equipped, and they they test us daily medically, right? So they're they're checking our oxygen levels, our pulse. Um, you know, are, are we eating enough? Are we sleeping? Are we? Going to the bathroom properly, all that kind of stuff, um, which is its own challenge. <laughs> you know, when you're you're out there on the mountain, you're like, oh boy, you really get to appreciate a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's for dinner? Yeah, so, so they, they they fed us well. I mean, they had like uh, rice and chicken and soups, very salty soups, uh, but but they were good and plantains, which they they cook when they're very green, so it's almost, it tastes just like a potato. Uh, but lots of starch. And they had this, um, this really g- great meal called uh, uh, Nogali, which is this um, – uh, it's, it's, it's like a, a corn starch. It looks like a pile of mashed potatoes, but it's just very starchy calories which is all you need because you're burning them just walking all day long. So um, we had that, we had juices, and, and we had eggs in the morning. I don't know who didn't drop the eggs, but God bless him for, uh, for, for getting them there day after day. And so the, there was food, and, and we ate pretty well. But the, the higher up we got, the more inward the journey got, and the more sort of spiritual it became. And, and, I, and I almost felt like this pilgrim you know as we we get up to these higher altitudes because at one point uh, around day four um, two of our 12 people had to turn back down they just weren't handling the altitude and it's one of those things that you don't know how you're going to deal with it till you get there you, you can't really train for altitude short of going to it
1: let me ask you a question here if you bail yeah. if you have to bail mm-hmm. they have like one of the guides will take
2: you back how's yep. it work that's Yeah, one of the guides will walk you down. And if you're having trouble with altitude, the good news is uh, just any degree lower, 500 feet lower, 1,000 feet lower, it it gets exponentially easier. There's more air down there. There's more air starts getting into your body and um, so in a matter of just an hour or two, you can start feeling a lot better once you get to lower elevations. So, yeah, two people had to turn back. And that's scary, too, because you realize, wow, that could have been me. We've got
1: more to come. The call of Kilimanjaro with Gene, Jeff and Randall. You're in the
17: Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN.
1: and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the Paracast.plus to learn more about
12: Paracas Plus. If you are trying to quit drinking or doing too many drugs, listen to me. You don't know me and we'll never meet. I had a problem like you once. I drank and used to party a little too much till it got out of control and almost ruined my life. get clean call now and learn more 800-296-1252 800-296-1252 800-296-1252
0: 800-296-1252 welcome back to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio and now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: Ah, what a trip we're taking, okay. Some two people have bailed already, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and putting up with this food. It's not like you see in some of these TV shows where they take out the wrapper with the freeze-dried <laughs> substance that you don't want to possibly
2: identify. Yeah, no, we did pretty well. I mean, you know, everything was just so well done. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Is it like five-star cuisine? No, but it was uh, considering where we were. My expectations were low. I just needed calories. And and also this sense of gratitude. You you realize just how much help you need. Now, you have to take every step yourself. No one can carry you up a mountain, but it it does take a village to to get the tents up there and everything else. And once we start getting closer to the, the Barafu Base Camp, which sits at 15,000 feet, and that's, that's uncomfortable. If you stand perfectly still and you relax, you can breathe okay. But even a short walk, just 10, 20 yards, you really feel it. You feel winded, like you just ran a sprint, except it takes a, a whole full minute or two just to recover your breath from just walking.
1: Well, like, as you're talking about the meal, by the way, I think of the movie Soylent Green. Okay. Silent Green is people.
17: Do you remember that line (laughs) at all, Jeff? Maybe Randall does. I don't. Oh, yeah, of course I remember. Silent Green, a classic for sure. Definitely. I'm not entirely sure what the relevance is here to Kilimanjaro. (laughs) I'm just thinking about the diet they had, which is
1: somewhat more restricted. And I'm thinking, of course, of the shows I watch on TV. Like, for example, there are always these scenes in Stargate SG-1 where they have the little candy wrapper and they're opening it up and some nondescript thing is being consumed with less than supreme pleasure at having this nutritious meal. Probably something scientifically done for. Anyway, Jeff, let's go on. Let's continue with (laughs) our mountain climbing, our
2: spiritual journey. We did have Mars bars, Mars candy bars.
1: You had the new Soylent-flavored Mars bars.
2: Yeah, that was a treat. <laughs> I remember seeing, like, are those Mars bars? I'm in. Like, let's do this. Yeah, <laughs> So we had those. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so once we got to Barafu Base Camp, and and this is where it really starts to get powerful and spiritual because it's it's only three miles now to the top, but it's going to take us eight hours to do that. We're going to leave at midnight so, so we we go to try to go to bed, try to sleep around five. We eat a meal and then we we try to sleep in our tents, which I, I can't really sleep. I'm anxious. I'm excited. I don't want to fail. That's the other thing is I keep thinking about the goal, the goal, the goal. You know, the the summit, and I'm so such a goal oriented person. But I, I lay there and, and and try to relax, and then pretty soon it's eleven o'clock at night and time to wake up because we have to start at midnight because it's going to take eight hours. We want to get up there around sunrise. And then we, we got to get back to the Barafu camp. This is going to be a haul now. When I step out of the tent, it's the coldest I've ever been. And I'm, I'm a New England guy. I can take it. I can take the cold, but it is just frigid. And it's so hard to breathe. And we have headlamps on. It's the only light we have. And there's the city of Moshi way in the distance. And it looks like you're in an airplane because it's just the little lights way down there. And we eat a little bit of food, and around midnight, we just start walking. The difference between 15,000 feet and 16,000 feet in elevation, as far as breathing goes, is brutal. The difference between eight and 9,000 feet, not so much. You hardly notice it. But 15 to 16, and then 16 to 17, I mean, you know the oxygen is just below you at this point. Uh, It's about 3 in the morning, and I mean, it's just the darkest and coldest I've ever been in my life. And I'm nervous. We've passed two plaques for for people who have died, commemorating. You know, they died from the altitude. Right there, you realize people do die up here. And I don't want to be one of those people. And I also don't want to fail. Uh, you're almost like an automaton. Like your brain doesn't work as well. Because I remember at one point I had to unzip my jacket and put a layer on, and I couldn't get my zipper together. I just didn't have the coordination. It felt like I was drunk, but not even the fun drunk. Just the not coordinated drunk. One of the guides had to come over and zip me up like a child. And I don't even know how I can do this. But I, you know, you push on and you push on. And then about three thirty, four in the morning, I turn around and I see just the faintest light out on the horizon. And I realize the sun is making its way around. We We get a little bit higher and then the sun's getting higher up and higher up. And finally, it's about 6.30 in the morning and we reach the rim of the volcano, a place called Stella Point. And I turn around and I see this sunrise. I mean, it was just this most powerful spiritual moment for me. I thought about what the Maasai people said about the, the summit of Kilimanjaro, that this is the house of God. This is where God dwells. And only those God deems worthy are allowed up here. And in that moment, I absolutely felt the presence of God, creator, spirit of the mountain, universe, whatever term you want to use, this higher power felt omnipresent all around me. And I felt my brother-in-law, Chris, at that moment as well. I felt his presence. I felt like he was with me the whole way. But right there, it felt like he was standing right next to me. And seeing the sun up and and the world had just warmed up, maybe 15 degrees at least, and then you can see now and, and, and your warmth and the sunrise is there. And I suddenly had hope where I had none just a few hours before. And in that moment, I realized, like, I am going to make it. I'm going to make it to the summit. It's still another 500 vertical feet, another half mile. It's going to take close to an hour. But I knew at that moment that I was judged, I was deemed worthy, and that I would make it. And it's a moment I will never forget. And I took a picture of it. It's it's in the book. You can see it. But it was just so profound, so life-changing. I'm so grateful that I captured it because I, I get to see it whenever I want. I can look at the picture again.
17: Now, that's amazing. I I was actually first introduced to Kilimanjaro in a song by Santana. Oh. Know, on the album Zebop. And it conveys that kind of a feeling. It's an instrumental, but it conveys that kind of a feeling. And it, it made me want to know a little bit more about it. I've never been there But, I mean, we're talking about, you know, a dormant volcano in Tanzania, Africa, with three cones, and this is the highest freestanding mountain in the world, 19,341 feet above sea level. So, you know, it may not be the highest mountain above sea level, but apparently it is a long way from the bottom to the top. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) So, you know, uh, it's really interesting to hear your story. I I know of one other guy I talked to who who did the trek. He called it a scramble. So you don't really need climbing ropes and all of that, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, you can make it if you're in half decent shape. Did you do any working out before going? Were you prepared for it a bit?
2: Yeah, so we six months of training, a lot of cardio, uh, a lot of hiking in, in the mountains of New Hampshire and, and Massachusetts, and um, you know, learning how to adapt to the cold and have the right gear and things like that. So yeah, there, but but. We had a regiment that we were given for you know like do planks every day, sit ups, push ups, um, but but the cardio regiment was really important because it's it's endurance. I mean, you you sometimes have to walk you know six, seven, eight miles in a day um, and then do it all again the next day and, and through higher elevation, which is just exponentially harder because you don't have as much oxygen in your blood that you would at sea level. And so um, so this kind of like this culmination, this thing. Uh, And at that point, you know, so once we start making our way around the rim of the volcano to get up to the highest point, to to get to the the actual summit, um, you know, it's just like this walking automaton. And I can see glaciers. I mean, these glaciers are going to be gone because of climate change. They predict maybe even by like 2030 they could be gone. So I'm going to be one of the last people to actually see and and photograph these, these amazing glaciers. And then finally, there's the sign in the distance, and you get closer and closer, and it's just you reach out and you and and it's there, and I touch it, and I, I, it's this thing I've been thinking about for so long, and I thought, you know, I've done enough mountains to know that the summit isn't always the big moment, but it's 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 I'll, I guess it's like the trophy, right? You you competed, you get the trophy there, you get your picture taken, but that wasn't the profound. Moment, uh, it was that sunrise. Seeing that sunrise was this big spiritual awakening for me, and the summit was just sort of like finishing it, just just you know, um, dotting the i's and crossing the t's at that point because we we're only there maybe ten minutes. It, it's can't breathe. Uh, you, you get your photos taken, and then you we got to get down. We got to start making our way down. Let's break yep. it here, guys. Hey, let's break it here.
1: More with Jeff, Gene, and Randall. You're in the podcast. <laughs> the Plus. to learn more about
18: paracast plus
5: i tried other brands but i came back to my sunshine
18: for the best hot or cold pain relief get the best get a sunny bay heating pad
19: sometimes life can be a pain in the neck or back or shoulder
18: and the best relief for that pain is a Sunny Bay heating pad did you know that the American College of Physicians said that one of the best ways to treat muscle pain is heat therapy Sunny Bay heating pads are handmade with high quality can be used at home or at work and have a lifetime 100% positive rating on both Amazon and Etsy
19: why take another pill
18: many people use our Sunny Bay heating pads alone and got rid of the neck pain long distance travel or long hours in front of a computer can take its time on your body.
19: Our homegrown small business tries to help people just like us. That's why we design and test our handmade products with great care before we introduce them to the public. You can easily find Sunny Bay Heating Pads on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com and search for Sunny Bay Heating Pads.
5: You might be eligible for a CGM with little or no cost to you. Call U.S. Medical Supply today for a free benefits check. We offer free shipping, 90-day supplies, and we bill Medicare or your insurance directly. Call now and say goodbye to finger pricks.
20: 800-880-1896. 800-880-1896. 800-880-1896. That's 800-880-1896.
4: Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamil Bukabu from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Longevity Health Team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor, Dr. Joel Wallach at Wholesale, or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to TeamGaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form, and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's TeamGaday.com with Longevity. Teamgaday.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at Paracast.com. That's news at Paracast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Oh, we're right at the mountaintop right now. Yes. I am not trying to visualize this because I don't want to be there, but I'm enjoying this story with Jeff. And Gene and Randall okay, so you get to the summit, but you don't just
2: stay there. Well, no, because I mean, you know, you you gotta keep moving, you gotta get down. It's it's cold, it's hard to breathe, but this there's this sort of like epiphany moment when I'm at the summit and and I've had the pictures taken and I'm excited about that, and you realize, oh my goodness, I am at the halfway point. (laughs) That's halfway you have to get down. It doesn't count. Getting here doesn't count. Getting down is what makes it count. You know, I, I start thinking about that, that whole idea that not only do I have to get down off the mountain, I have to get home. That was the goal all <laughs> along, right? I got to get back, back to America, back to Massachusetts, back to my family. And otherwise, none of this matters. I was so singularly focused on that summit for so long, for months. But I mean, I thought about it since childhood. But I mean, to actually be that focused and to get there and realize this was never the goal. It was always to get back home. And then at that point, you just sort of shrug and you close your camera and you start walking back and it was it's a long walk and 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 you come down and it's it's this thing where i feel like when i was up there it's almost like a picture that's a line drawing like you t- you take a black and white line drawing and it would take weeks months for that for the colors to sort of fill in and to to fully appreciate this thing that i've gone through and what it means and and how it affected me and how it changed me You know, we get down to Barafu base camp and we get to eat a little more food and just a short rest because then we got to get down to another camp. And we've been awake and moving for, you know, God, with the exception of like a four hour rest just on the go for the last like 40 hours. It's been brutal. And then we wake up the next morning and and see the uh, there was a snow the night before on on Kilimanjaro. The whole thing was just blanketed with white snow the the following morning. And Hemingway wrote a short story called The, The Snows of Kilimanjaro. And there's just one line in there that really struck me. I'd only read it a couple of weeks before I went over to Africa, but it said, he went into the mountains to work the fat off his soul, the way a fighter would work the fat off his body. And I went, I work the fat off my soul. Man, that's the thing, right? That's what this was about. You know, like you get you get in your 40s and you get comfortable. You get like the, this life that you think you want and the job that you're you're good at and you're comfortable with and the, you know, the, the friends that annoy you, you've pushed them aside or whatever. And you, you sort of get into this midlife rut to realize like up there at, at, at that in that hostile environment, it takes grit to survive. And we all knew we had grit when we were younger, you know, when we were struggling to pay the rent and all that other stuff but there's something about being too comfortable too long and it was, it was so amazing to get up there and realize I still have that grid it's still in there when I need it and that to me was one of the biggest takeaways
1: okay true grid now the sense I have about this is coming back down is a faster journey or am I wrong
2: no it's a different there's one way down there's three three or four different routes to get to the top. We took the longest because you, you get to acclimate the most, but it's one way down. It's two days down. Uh, everybody takes the same path down to a different part of the mountain, and that's where you've got to get picked up. So, yeah, it's, it's faster. Coming down is hard. It, c- going up is all muscle. If you get tired, you rest. Coming down is impact on your ankles and your knees, and I find it much more difficult to come down a mountain than going up one, which is a, there's a life lesson in there somewhere, right? I mean, it's just it's harder coming down. And, and um, then the, the realization of what this means and, and how it affects you and, and all that stuff, it, it, the, the lesson takes time to sink in. And I was taking pictures the whole way and I was journaling all the time and I was trying to write down every thought and feeling that I had because I sort of got the sense somewhere during this that like I'm changing as a person. And I really feel like I came back as a better man and I connected with something, you know, with something big and with something powerful up there.
17: That is it's a really common experience from what I've heard from other people and read about that. I thought about maybe doing this. Uh, It's inspiring. Have you guys talked at all yet about how much it costs to do this? (laughs) We did. We did. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, Uh uh, I I think all in about
2: seven thousand dollars. That's not bad for a spiritual, you know, awakening. No, when you it th- really <laughs> wasn't. no, I agree with you. It, it really wasn't. And, and the U.S. dollar over there goes goes far. Um, when we got back to our hotel after that, after coming down off the mountain, we had two more nights in, in the town of Moshi. And just to give you an example, they had these 20 ounce Kilimanjaro beers that were one U.S. dollar each. And so I took out a $20 bill and I'm not quite sure how many, uh, (laughs) I think, I think 12 is how Uh many $1 Kilimanjaro beers you can get for $20. It was a, it was a lot and they just kept coming and flowing and it was sort of celebratory and amazing. But you start to realize like what I love about the mountain in general, right? Is it, it's this ultimate metaphor for anything going on in your life. Right, anything can be a mountain. Like trying to get in shape, trying to find a new job, trying to get over a breakup, trying to uh, finish a house project, or, or anything like that can be a mountain that you have to climb. And then there's mountains that we put in our way on purpose, and should, by the way, to to kind of test that grit. And that was the um, that's what this was for me was to just sort of intentionally put something in my way and, and see if I could still do it here somewhere in, in the middle of my life and, and, and still thinking about the loss of my brother-in-law and how, um, you know, you know, all the things that he's never going to get to do. And, um, and, and also realizing your own mortality, not knowing how long you have and, and the things that you better do because you, you don't know how long you're going to get on this.
17: Well, that all sounds really worthwhile. And we're, uh, most of the people on this trip, sort of in your same age range demographic.
2: Yeah, we were all. I mean, I, I think the well, the youngest guy was thirty. My tent mate Brian, um, but most of the people were in their forties, a few in their fifties, and um, everybody in, in our group specifically raising money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to to fight blood cancer. So there was it was um, it was a cool group to sort of realize we were all doing this not just for ourselves but for a cause as well. Which, which helped motivate me, by the way. That was something I didn't expect. I mean, I wanted to do this, but I had over like 300 donors that um, had donated to me. I raised over $17,000 for them. And I printed out their names and I kept it in my backpack the whole way. And I would look at it in my tent at night because I'm like, even if you donated five bucks, I didn't want to let anyone down. And I found that very motivating. You know, Just like, I want to get to the top for these 300 plus people that donated to this cause because I asked them to. um, Let me ask you a
1: question here. And this is one of those mercenary responses, say for whatever reason you couldn't complete the trip. Do you have to give (laughs) back the money? (laughs)
2: <laughs> no i know i know i, I thought of that too but yeah, no i didn't i didn't have to give back the money if i didn't complete it it was you know you you donated directly to the leukemia and the foma society you got a receipt tax deductible the whole thing i never touched any of the money it was uh, all through them okay uh, let's do our break here
1: yeah the book is the call of kilimanjaro finding hope above the clouds we've gone to the summit we've come back down and Jeff Belanger is recovering. With Gina Randall, you're in. The
17: Paracast.
7: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
10: We've all seen, and perhaps used, the alcohol-based
14: hand sanitizers. Have you noticed how it dries your skin, and as soon as the alcohol evaporates, it's no longer effective? GCNteam.com has alcohol-free antibacterial soap and foam, meeting or exceeding all requirements set forth by the United States Food and Drug Administration. Come to GCNteam.com, keyword antibacterial, or call 877-878-4203.
17: USA Radio News
11: with Dan Narocki. Former President Trump says he's heading to the southern border in the next few weeks.
6: Well, a lot of people want me to. The border patrols and all of the people of ICE, uh, if they want me there, they've asked me to go. And I really sort of feel I owe it to them. They're great people. They're doing an incredible job. It's impossible now with what they've done. The stay in Mexico should have been left. And now they stay in the United States. And by the way, stay in and
11: never leave. Trump speaking with Fox News. The former president's comments coming a day after a group of GOP senators visited the border, saying they were stunned by conditions at facilities holding unaccompanied minors. And a detention officer at the Oklahoma County Detention Center in Oklahoma City has been hospitalized after being held hostage by an inmate. Officials with the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office say that the inmate was shot and killed by Oklahoma City police officers. The condition of the detention officer has not been released. This is USA Radio News. Following a trip to the southern border, a group of GOP senators said they would be unwilling to work on an immigration reform bill with the administration until the crisis on the border is resolved. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley questioned how they could pass an immigration bill when the border was still open. Representative Tony Gonzalez says there are some things that Congress can do to deal with that humanitarian crisis. The Texas Republican tells CNN that making changes to the work visa and asylum programs would provide some relief on the border.
6: If children are, you know, legitimately making the trek from these dangerous areas, which many of them are, right? And if they're legitimately seeking asylum, why do we have to wait till they reach America? Why can't we focus on Mexico and some of these areas that way they don't have to make that dangerous trek. That's one that's one answer to it. Another part is work visas. Let's increase the amount of work visas. If people want to come to live the American dream and work hard, well let's welcome them. Through the front door, we absolutely need to know who's coming into our country, what we need to do with through increased work visas.
10: This is USA Radio News. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They
2: put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called Federal Tax Management
13: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Now, we think when we go into these places that are kind of out of the normal path that one travels, did you see anything or experience anything in our paranormal universe during
2: all this? at the summit was very spiritual. I was raised Catholic. I sort of wandered away from the church late high school and into college. I think it just didn't really resonate with me anymore. And I became agnostic, never an atheist. I never got to that point. But I I definitely found a different sense of spirituality, mainly because of my work in the paranormal, looking for ghosts and haunts and thinking like, you know, hey, some people seem to stick around and and, uh, longer than others and things like that. So, so to have this sort of spiritual experience and then to not put a label on it was very comforting to me in my adult life, you know, to, to not have to call it something uh, that specifically tied to a religion, even though someone who's religiously inclined might, you know, take it that way. You know, I did ask around a little bit when we were in Moshi, I was like, hey, any haunted places around here? Any, any sort of monsters or whatever? And they they sort of laughed. In that culture, it, it wasn't something that they're they're too comfortable talking about but at the same time i think they could appreciate that i I was asking just as a little more matter of fact as opposed to anything with any sort of like spiritual implication that's one of the interesting things right when you talk about specifically ghosts and haunts in some cultures, and even within the United States, there's certain parts of the country that that tend to look at that as well. That's that's dark stuff. That's satanic, or um, you know, there's only of God and of the devil. There's nothing in between. And and I get it. We all have to figure out how to process the world around us in one way or another. And, and religion is is one lens that we can view this world, I guess. But yeah, other than that, I didn't get to. Uh, to, to trip on any legends over there while I was in Tanzania. Maybe
17: next uh, time. Yeah, because I'm not sure if you did much research prior to going there on any of that, but the people there near Kilimanjaro, there's there's a people called the Chaga. Yeah, Chaga, and, Chaga, yeah. Yeah, yes, yeah, so the Chaga. And they do have a very close relationship to what they believe are their
2: ghosts. Well, sure, what well, ancestor worship, which is one of the earliest forms of religion, of spirituality, really. So their ancestors are always close by. Well, a couple of our guides were Chaga. Like that's, that's, um, you know, that they're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Chaga. Like that's, that's my family heritage and uh, talked about some of the, the, um, parts of their culture and things like that. And, and we talked about Swahili and, and speaking a little Swahili, which was really neat. But yeah, so so to me, it's it's funny that the, the the earliest forms of religion in really all the world is ancestor worship, the idea that you reach out to your, your family that has come before you, and. I wonder why someone would think to do that, unless maybe they saw a ghost, right? A, a spirit, someone well, that it, they yeah. they knew in person. Say, wait, I knew you, but we buried you. Like you, you've been gone for months, but yet here you are. And the idea that wow, you must after death, it must like transcend this this uh, this thing that this thing called death. So it makes total sense to me. And then, and then we just get down to labels, right? Like one person's ghost is another spirit is another's from the devil is another's angel and and so on. And and labels are, I know we need them, but but I, I also think that they can muddy the waters. Oh, definitely. Well, that's why we need people like yourself and other
17: paranormal researchers who can think about it in a fair minded, but also critically minded. And by that, I mean, critical thinking perspective so that y- you can sort it all out and look at it objectively. And, you know, it's really fascinating when you can look at it through that kind of a lens, because people do have these experiences, even you yourself, you were saying that you felt it was like a presence yeah, of, of people. And so, I mean, if you're feeling this, who knows? Maybe it's just the thin air. Maybe it's not. But either <laughs> sure. way, you're not going to be the only one. We're all human beings and we all work pretty much the same way. So if you're having these experiences on a regular basis, it's only natural for you to develop some sort of a belief system about what they mean and what of they course. are.
2: No, of course. And, and I I truly believe that when it comes to all this stuff, including me at the top of the mountain there, I think we summon and I don't mean in some like hocus pocus way. I mean, when you when you recall memories of the dead, when you, you you're literally calling that person up. And when I was up there, I, I thought of Chris. I, I, that was my and I, I can't I can't stress enough how few thoughts I was having on that mountain because you're just broken down. I mean, it's the analogy I like to use is it's like a, you're a wet towel that's just been wrung out every drip drop has been wrung out of this towel because on the summit, I mean, I cried, I laughed and I could tell you, I couldn't tell you why for either one, just, just emotions just poured out. You're oxygen deprived and, and just um, every emotion is just kind of coming out of you at once. But I do remember thinking about my family and I remember thinking about Chris and, and he was there. I just felt, I felt him smiling next to me. And by the way, in life, Gene is going to climb Kilimanjaro before Chris would promise, right? (laughs) (laughs) He would be uh, if we all lined up, everyone on Earth, Chris would be dead last. Gene would be right in front of him, right? You know
1: what? I have to tell you this right now. You're wrong. All right. The only way I climb Kilimanjaro is from the cockpit of a flying
17: saucer or something. I'll look out. Okay, that's cool. Let's get home. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, actually, that brings up an interesting point. Like, were there any people that were on, you know, made the the trek by Burrow or, or you know, were, no, were transported?
2: No, no, no. Nope. there's okay. no no way. You got to walk it. Um, okay. There, there's talk about putting a, a giant cable car up there, which I think would be tragic because it's um, yeah. it takes away from the whole experience. You know, you know, like I, I felt like a pilgrim. You know, just walking miles and miles through this rough terrain. To have this transformative experience, and there's no, there's no shortcut to a transformative experience. Right? There just yeah, it's, isn't.
17: It's like the, it's like the walkabout thing. For, right. you, know, the, you need that. You need to experience it. It seems that a lot of people's personal revelations or transformations come about through challenge, of course, and and that's probably putting it mildly. Definitely through tragedy as well. So. I, it, to evolve as a human being, personally, spiritually, whatever you want to call it, what you were saying about just you know living in comfort and not paying attention to the to that aspect of your life is really true, and it's surprising how many people in the world just don't get that.
2: So i had I had a job when I, one of my first jobs out of college. I was working for an advertising agency, and my boss showed me this article that said most people retire at age 35 and of course i'm like that's what that's absurd are you crazy but then i read it the point was most people by the time they get about their mid-30s they 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 sort of like they they don't really challenge themselves enough and they get into sort of like this rut of a job and they just sort of stick with it and that's where they stay until they actually do retire uh, for financial reasons it hit me i'm like oh man that sounds awful like, and, and, and I think that was his point is to say, like, don't retire at 35. Don't retire at 45. Don't retire. Right. Find something that. And, sorry about that. That uh, invigorates you and challenges you and and, and keeps you going and, and makes it so, you know, you, you want to keep working and find that next thing.
1: Well, I'll tell you this. I was a lot older than 35 when we started this radio show.
2: <laughs> and, and here you are still doing it. All these years, you're one of the, you're one of the original podcasters, man. I mean, come on. You know what? You there was right. no
1: such thing as a podcast when okay, I did my original show, which was the technology show, which we don't do anymore. That started in 2002. Apple did not have a podcast. There was no such thing as a podcast at that point. Okay, so we were there first, or you know, amongst the very few internet-based radio shows. We actually joined a physical network with the PowerCast and the Tech Night Out Live in 2010. So maybe Got we it. were doing it in the reverse. But yeah, we did indeed become one of the pioneers. I know there have been quite a few paranormal radio shows since we started. Some are still here. Some are not. We're in our 16th year now. It's amazing. It is it, really amazing that it's taken it this is. long The book is called The Call of Kilimanjaro Finding Hope Above the Clouds. Jeff Belanger, a ghost hunter, takes this journey partly in honor of his late brother in law. We got more to come with Gene and Randall. And Jeff, you're in The
17: Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN.
21: Tehebo Tea Club's original Pure Pau Diarco Super Tea comes from the only tree in the world that fungus doesn't grow on. As a result, it naturally has antifungal, anti infection, antiviral, antibacterial, anti inflammation, and antiparasite properties. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. That's shop, S-H-O-P, super, S-U-P-E-R, T-T-E-A, dot com. So the complete website is shopsupertea.com. Or call us at 818-984-6100, Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, California time. That's shopsupertea.com at 818-984-6100.
4: This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Ever so fascinating making this journey. Actually, I still like Stargates. I can't get over the way they do it in a Stargate. They just enter this thing, and they're in another galaxy.
2: Well, until we get that... <laughs> You know, again, but that's the shortcut, right? We were just talking about that before the break. Like, there's no shortcuts to enlightenment. <laughs> but you you start thinking about the profound nature of some of these experiences, and you got to look at it through the lens of like all of your experiences, everything from the ghost hunting to the sky watches for UFOs to to all that stuff. And one of the reasons I've said I love the paranormal so much is that. Though it's considered the fringe of mainstream, it's out there on the fringe that's the most interesting. And it's also a place that we can have some of the safest discussions about really big issues. Right in the middle, you know, we can't talk about faith or we can't talk about things like that without putting it through the the lens of uh, some some religion. But out here on the fringe, we can talk about how this stuff – and you can think it's just a story if that's what you want. Or you can think of it as – uh, you know something else, and 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 yet it sinks in, right? The story itself sinks in and, and grows root inside of you.
1: I wanted to go back here now that we've covered the basics of the trip and the return. Your late brother-in-law's out-of-body experiences, yeah. And of course, you know, on the surface they can say, "Well, the guy is suffering from a terminal disease." And maybe he imagined everything, but out-of-body experiences aren't that easy.
2: No. And, and I also, I can't stress enough that you got to look at it through the lens of this, of Chris, right? I mean, not only is every out-of-body experience unique to the person, of course, but Chris is not a paranormal guy. Like he's not a guy that read those books or watched those shows. He, and, and as I said earlier, he, he was not a religious person. In fact, he might have even been an atheist when I first met him. We never talked about God or religion. It was just one of those things like, "Eh, you know it's for other people. an educator uh he was a he was a principal of a school and and um so when this happened to him, he was as shocked and scared as anybody, and he called me because uh, you know I, i'm I'm into paranormal stuff, and I might have something to say about it and those were just such great conversations because he was just Hey, I, this thing happened to me. What do you think it means? And he just described it in great detail and uh, had had no no filter on it. You know, it was not he wasn't trying to sound like some TV show or something. And I thought it was just so genuine. OK,
17: let's try and kind of combine the two here. Now, according to the the mythology there, the Chaga. They believe that ghosts regularly visit their relatives in dreams where they can briefly carry them, meaning the dreamer, into the spirit world and return again. Have you had any dreams connected
2: with Uh, this in any way with people who have passed on? So I remember a dream I had years ago where it was so vivid. I was in my parents' kitchen uh, where they lived in Connecticut. And the, um, uh, my, my two grandfathers were there and, and I know they had passed on at this point, both of them had passed on, but they're both standing in my kitchen in my parents' kitchen. And they just looked at me and smiled. And that was the whole dream. I woke up and I remember just feeling overwhelming emotion. Um, just, just powerful, powerful emotion. Um, kindness, love, sadness, like all of it at once kind of thing. And when Chris was near the end, I know my sister like he had said like they had worked out signs and things like that that he was gonna try to come back and 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 give her some kind of sign and I've asked her about it, but my sister still it's been it's been years it's been oh my gosh almost almost five years over five years now that he's been gone and he's uh, she believes she's had some signs from him. I actually thought. Uh, that he would come to me (laughs) because he, he would know that I could handle it better than my sister. You know, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, that, that the message might, I might become the messenger. And, um, so far, other than that experience on Kilimanjaro and I had a psychic friend who told me that, um, jokingly before I was going and I said, I'm doing this, I'm doing this in memory of Chris, uh, She had said, she's like, Chris has a message for you that he's going to help you get to the top. But coming down, you're on your own. And I laughed because I was like, man, I don't get a lot of psychic readings. Sometimes they're offered to me. But I like that does sound like his personality, you know, to to say something like that. And and was this before you planned your trip to, to Kilimanjaro? So once, once I, once I committed to doing it, I mean, I, I told everybody in in part because I I wanted to, well, I was raising money for leukemia lymphoma society, but also because I felt like the more people I told, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to come back and tell them I didn't make it, you know? So I was doing it as another way to motivate me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. I'm going to get to the top. I was telling everybody, I was telling the grocery store clerks and stuff, you know, like this, I'm going to do this. So when they saw me, they could be like, well, did you make it? And I would have to answer to them. And so, um, you know, at paranormal conferences and stuff, I'd I'd run into some of my my psychic friends. And that one that one sort of stuck out. Um, OK, I, so, I mean, they could have known that you were going then be, before oh, no, I told you them. that reading. I, no, I, I told oh, okay. them I was going and doing right. this in memory of my brother in law. And then ah, okay. she announced, I have a message for you. I don't know. You know, like I. Yeah. I
17: I, like I have if, a hard time if, re- if you got that one like five years ago before you thought about going, I'd be thinking, OK, that's a little bit.
2: <laughs> no, 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 no. It was it was a, it was know. a layup. It was a layup. If you're a psychic medium. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, again, not to disparage, I just can't relate to the, the the psychic message thing you know i i've right. never had an experience where i can say oh i get it because i get those messages too i so i can't and and uh, i'm not saying they're not having those experiences i'm not inside their head but it's not something that I, I typically relate to so right here's
17: something that else you might find interesting i'm just you know just bringing up little tidbits here Yes, yeah. uh, apparently the chaga Believe not only that ghosts can influence events on Earth, but that events on Earth, like in this world, reverberate through the spirit world where they are. So that when there's major upheavals in our world, it's felt in theirs as well. Which and so, sense. which is really kind of interesting. I'd never really considered that before. But, yeah, you know, but uh, like apparently, when the colonial powers first went into East Africa, they felt that their their ghosts were growing thin and ragged under the heavy burden of colonialism, and, and that, like their living counterparts, were being forced to pay taxes, some kind of spiritual tax in the underworld. So, you know, th- this is a really complex relationship that they have with their belief system, even if there isn't necessarily
2: an objective reality to it. it it's quite a complex psychology. So, you no, know, and, and that makes all the sense in the world to me, because uh, it, it's it, I mean, if you think about it, th- those are our ancestors. They're the people that came before us. Those are our parents and our grandparents. And if they still have the capacity to care once they're on the other side, of course, they're going to care. I mean, I can imagine how I would be. I mean, I've got a, a daughter and I've got family and stuff, and I can imagine how I would want to look after them. And I know being alive when, when my daughter suffers, I suffer. I mean, that's just because I'm a parent and I care about her a lot. Um, so it, it makes total sense to me that that there would be this sort of like two-way street to that suffering uh, and reverberation and, and that interconnectedness. Because we're a product of, of the people who raised us and the people who came before them and the people who came before them. And and we're we're passing on their legacy, whether we know it or not, even whether we're even conscious of it. We're passing on those lessons to our own children and, and families and people around us. It's just how the how it all works. Um, so I love the the fact that they they've identified that hey, it's it's not just one way. The the, the cares don't stop once you pass into the afterlife. Um, that that, it, that you've you've got to continue to look after the the world because that's. That's the thing, right? Like so many decisions that I think are made, especially at some levels. You, you, you're, you're you, I'm thinking like environmentally and things like that. Sometimes people are are, are thinking in the very short term, um, which is fine for some stuff. But when you get into bigger issues, uh, can really. That have rippling effects that can do damage for generations and Oh, definitely yeah yeah. yeah
17: pe- people are very self-serving and uh that you know the whole lookout for number one thing is is you know that's been a mantra especially in the western world for you know generations and generations so i just love this conversation because you've opened up a, a really important area of discussion and i it sounds to me like you could this could be something that could move you into, I mean, not only your discussions about the paranormal, but motivational speaking. And in a way that you might be able to combine the two, because you, you come across to me as another one of these really positive people, sort of like Morgan Knudsen up here in Canada. Uh, whenever we get talking with you or her, uh, there's this radiant s- sort of positivity. Ladies and gentlemen, let's
1: keep the positivity up for a couple of minutes here. Jeff, Gene, and Randall, you're in. The
17: Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
0: That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com.
13: Hi, Peter Peccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: Boy, I'll tell you the way he said the Paracast, Randall is really positive. And what he's saying here is, in essence, Morgan you, Jeff, you give out good vibes. That's how we said back in the 60s.
2: Good vibes. And I I go with that. That's what I think, too. Uh, You know, I'm a a believer in people. I really am. And uh, I'm a fan of the species called humans. We're flawed. We have our problems for sure. At the end of the day, I feel like when given the opportunity, people will do the right and kind thing. If given the chance, and uh, <laughs> okay, maybe I need to make that track up the mountain. <laughs> maybe because no,
17: but at the same time, like, I've, I've become grown. I've grown old and cynical, and I'm a realist. And I look at the world and I go, "No, you know what? Good doesn't always win.
2: <laughs> it doesn't." But at the same time, like so, so here's a here's a fundamental question: Do you believe people are always doing their best with what they have to work with? No. No,
17: no, not at all. I think that our potential is often not recognized. And I think that maybe this is one of the things that you discovered. And I think that, that people like yourself and the people who think about these what you call the bigger issues and can put them into a perspective where they can relay them to other people in the world and are in a position to do that they have a responsibility to do that and to get out and do that and not only that they're driven to do that and it makes them in my view important in the world
2: yeah no thank you but at this so my, my point about that is that I, I know, like, the drug addict who's literally, like, passing out behind a dumpster, uh, just a total junkie, that person might be doing the best with what they have to work with. It's all they know. It's not good by yours or my standard. And so how can we show that person a better way? You know, how can we give them the tools to, to realize that you can do better than this and help them? But but realizing that the decisions they make, even if they're robbing you at the time, that's the best they can do right now, right? <laughs> like, I'm robbing uh, you to get a fix. Uh, and, well, like, that, how can we know. find uh, the compassion to say, like, this is the best you have right now? And how do I what can I do to show you that there's maybe a better way?
17: That reminds me of here in Calgary. I uh, live in a fairly decent neighborhood here in Calgary called Lakeview, but it's, it's near uh, one of the First Nations lands. Uh, what they used to call, you know, a reserve. So a lot of poor First Nations people, and I'm a night hawk, okay? So some cars have been broken into around here over the years. It's, It's pretty good. It's fairly low crime, but it happens once in a while. So I just leave my car open all the time. And I just take the stuff out, right? So because I'd sooner have them go through it and find nothing than bust a window to get in and find nothing. And I'm working away on my computer at about 3.30 in the morning. And all of a sudden I hear some rustling around outside the window and I look and my interior light is on in my car. So I kind of go downstairs, open the door and I go out and I look in the in the driver's side window. And on the other side, there's a young native and he's rustling through my car. So I open the door and I say, hey, you know, can I help you find something? And he just, <laughs> you know, he just looks at me and then looks again like he can't believe what he's seeing. He has this flight reaction, you know, it's the, either the fight or flight reaction. So he gets up and he starts to, to run away. And I, say, I go, hey, no, you know, just take it easy. <laughs> just know, OK, that I don't keep stuff in the car. He says, please, please don't call the police. He says, I said, don't worry. I'm not going to call the police or anything like that. Just tell your friends and your buddies. I don't, I'm not rich. I don't have much stuff. My TV's old. It weighs a hundred thousand pounds. You're not, you know, you can't walk off. Nothing's in my car. You know, I'm glad you didn't wreck anything and, and really try to you know, not go go out and, and break other people into other people's cars and break stuff. OK, just
2: <laughs> I got to stop you, Randall. Wait, I, you have to answer that question I asked you before differently. You do think people are trying their best. You gave that kid the benefit of a lot of doubts. You, you really did.
17: Right. You, well, they you... might be trying their best, but do, I thought you meant like doing their best. Like, oh, are they we'll reach.
2: Help. Are they okay. reaching
17: their potential?
2: No, is, none of us are reaching our potential. None of us are doing our best. Yeah. You can't keep that up all the time. On a good but, day, I, I, you know, I mean, if I if I do my best for like ten solid minutes in a day, that's a good day. Yeah, um, right. We could all. Hey, do that's better. pretty good.
1: Ten minutes. I thought three minutes is the standard.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> Remember in the old days, a record was two to three minutes. You never had a recording. More than three minutes. Now, of course, this is many years ago. Then we had, of course, MacArthur Park from Richard Harris. And we had Hey Jude by The Beatles. And suddenly had the seven-minute bathroom records that disc jockeys would play that, take a quick trip to the water closet, and return in time for the conclusion of the record. But otherwise, it was two or three
17: minutes. That's where yeah. I say two to three minutes. Go ahead.
2: No. I, I, it's,
17: uh, now I'm thinking about records. Um, But anyway, I I never had, this was years ago and I haven't had a single problem since with anything like that because I was decent to the kid, right? He was just searching for some change to buy a hot dog or something down at the 7-Eleven because, you know, he was underfed and not cared for. And so, you know, I think you really, it, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to look beyond just the fact that. Of what the surface seems to be the case you know if somebody's pointing a gun at you or threatening you or being ignorant well that's different right but yeah i mean yeah you know where we're going here yeah. and it, and what and
2: how it relates to the question you were asking yeah no it's it's I, I get it i totally appreciate where you're coming from one of the things too i noticed um it, it, it's weird i i've always tried to do stuff for charity. Cause it makes me feel good mainly, you know, wh- whatever it is. I mean, there's, um, there's various charities that I've, I've, I like to support and, um, I get my family involved and things like that. I've noticed, uh, what was interesting with fundraising, the fundraising part of this was the people who gave so much that just shocked me, you know, just like gave hundreds of dollars and donated, you know, uh, on behalf because I asked them to. And then the people who I know are quite well off who gave nothing, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and, uh, and, and, and so, I a couple of years ago, I made a New Year's resolution that I've actually stuck to year after year, is that every time a charity asks me, I will give something. Now, uh, not necessarily hundreds of dollars, but you know, at the grocery store, we're collecting for Boston Children's Hospital. Sure, you know, you donate. You just do it every time. And it makes me feel good because I notice once in a while I don't have any money on me and I feel guilty. I'm like, oh, do I go back? Like, do I have to go back and, and donate something? But it just kind of made me feel good uh, to give something every time. Maybe it's 10 bucks, maybe it's 5 bucks, whatever. But just something to sort of help a cause that I think is at all worthwhile. And, um, and it's, it's how I've lived my life and it's made me feel good. And so I keep doing it.
17: And probably the world needs more people like you. I mean, there are rich people who are. I mean, look at Bill Gates. I mean, a lot of people think he's the devil incarnate, but the guy donates like hundreds of millions of dollars to charitable causes that, for the most part, I think are really good. I don't think there's some evil plot, you know. So, so yeah. you know, not so. But then other people are just like, you know, maybe they donate in other ways. Maybe they employ, to, you know, thousands of people and spend their money in different ways. So, you know, it, just because people don't donate to charity doesn't make them bad people. But well, let's look at time- it this way,
1: Randall. We know that Jeff Bezos, the guy from Amazon, is worth $182 billion as of last count. If he would simply refund half of that to his employees, their salaries would probably double. And that would be a good charitable act.
17: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's sure. I mean, we could, you know, there's obviously this disproportionate uh, distance between the, you know, the poor and the, and the unbelievably rich. But, you know, d- being unbelievably rich doesn't necessarily mean that you're necessarily a bad person either. But it definitely for, for a person with the kind of conscience who looks at the world and goes, you know, I think that the world could be a better place, and I'm capable of making it a better place, and they choose not to, it it becomes difficult. It's difficult for me, and I live on the poverty line. I still want to try to help in certain ways. I I buy lottery tickets. I know the money goes to a lot of different (laughs) charities and and out to the community, and I think, well, okay, that's one way. I I know it's self-serving, but I think, you know, if I won, I'd definitely do something to help people. Let us help people with these announcements. Jeff, Gene, Randall, you're in. The
1: Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
0: more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot
16: If there's a sudden disaster and you can't get to the grocery store or they're all out of food, what would you do? You'll wish you had emergency food to get you through the crisis. And that's why we're here. We're MyPatriotSupply.com, America's leading source of emergency food. Our food lasts for up to 25 years and millions of families trust us for their disaster survival. Won't you join us? Unlike other food companies, we don't skimp on calories. Our meals give you more than 2,000 calories per day. Why? Because that's what you need to survive any challenging crisis. And right now, you can save $200 on our popular three-month emergency food kit. Just go to MyPatriotSupply.com and place your order. We ship fast, two to three days max. And your food arrives discreetly right to your door. So order today and save $200 at MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com.
20: Attention real estate investors. Do you need cash immediately? If you own one or multiple rental properties, you can use your equity to get cash out fast. The best part is we don't need tax returns or even a good credit score. At America's Loan Source, we are not a bank and we don't have bank rules. We make the decisions to loan you money and there's no limit how much we can give you. Some clients have gotten as much as $500,000 or more within days. Use the money any way you Want If you own one rental property or a hundred and COVID has left you in a cash crunch, we can help you turn your equity into fast cash. Call now for details and close in as little as 10 days and get the cash you need. 800-507-6553. 800-507-6553. 800-507-6553. That's 800-507-6553.
1: Well, Randall and I have an arrangement with regard to lottery tickets. I don't know what they call the one in Canada. Mine is called Powerball. We also have Mega Millions. But I stick with the Powerball, figuring here, I'm doing something by buying a couple of tickets every twice a week. So I'm spending $4 twice a week for that. The point being, however, is that if I win, and I won $4 the other day, so I got back Mm -hmm. one of my entries, if I win something winner. real like two hundred million dollars, you know, I have all sorts of options then to pay people and have enough for my old age. But since this is my old age, it's not going to help much. I was thinking the other day, well, two hundred million dollars minus taxes is what, one hundred thirty or something like that? What would I do with one hundred thirty for as long as I have left? It's almost know, preposterous. But, uh-huh. I'll help you figure it out, Gene. <laughs> Just- well, yeah, well, we, we understand that. But other than you helping me figure it out, and other than pumping a bunch of cash into my son's hands, and he doesn't care about money, really. I mean, you know, I mean, if you handed him, you know, $50 million, he wouldn't say no. But he doesn't live for the money,
17: he lives to have a good life.
1: Well,
17: but then, why a, are we even talking about archive? this? I think we could set up a Paracast archive, you know, a foundation of some kind for the paranormal that can contribute to some genuine researchers out there. You know, some people with money have done that. What would you do, Jeff, if, if you, you know, really made it big somehow?
2: No, made it big. No, I've bought those Powerball tickets too, guys like, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you start thinking about with my New England Legends podcast. Um, we've been trying to document the, the goal. We're documenting every legend in New England, and we've done uh, 187 weeks in a row, 187 stories. And I love the idea th- that we live in this time when so much of our 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 country, Canada too, I've been there plenty, you know, is is looking so homogenized. You know, it's just the box stores and the fast food restaurants, and they're all the same. And but these legends. Whether they're you know UFO landing sites or, or bigfoot sightings or or haunted places or whatever, these these stories make our communities unique. And so I love this idea of whether it's like some kind of cool app. Where you could, you know, you can get like like virtual uh, stories and stuff wherever you are. You can say like, okay, what's near me? And you can find it and you can, you know, get those stories and just this like catalog. Because the thing about legend and lore is that it's always changing and evolving. And what I, I view my job in part is to sort of like take a snapshot of it today. Take a picture because it's going to change tomorrow. I know it. It's going to change as someone else gets the story and adds to it or, or whatever or has a different experience in a, in a location that then becomes part of the new narrative narrative and so on. And it's this sort of like collective property of communities. And I love the idea of really trying to um, get it all on one page, if we could, and, and get armies of people sort of reporting it in and, and uh, just just growing something, something big, like crowdsource, you know, because that's what that's what legend and lore is. It's, it's people sharing a story with another person as something that they went through that's profound. And then it sort of kind of grows from there. So I love that. I love And, and then you start thinking about some of your friends like, oh, I'd hire him for like quit your job. You're going to be the full time web person and you quit your job and then you're going to be videographer and photographer. And we'll just have a really cool office with video games and stuff and the and coffee shop and a sushi chef.
17: <laughs> would we get our own secretary
2: so? yeah so yes. yeah no we would just like have this like really cool building and then go do the things we love to do and not have to worry about uh putting a roof over our heads you know like that's the dream
17: you should get in touch with christopher o'brien because actually that's something he was talking about doing as well after he left the show and so that he could focus more on his san luis valley camera project and he's got ufo dab going now and he talked exactly about that having an app putting one together where as people travel around, they could visit these places and then share any stories they might have of their own. I love this.
2: So one of the other things, okay,
17: inspiration, inspiration, buzz, buzz.
1: Okay. Apple has been adding new features to Apple maps. It started as really, really a poor cousin to Google maps because Google had so many years ahead of it. It's been adding more features. it spent billions of dollars. Recalibrating. The map feature around the world from the ground up, not just licensing it from other companies. They recently added COVID 19 vaccination sites to Apple Maps. What about paranormal sites, haunted houses? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have something like that integrate, which you can, with Apple Maps?
2: Yeah, of course it would. I mean, there's people that have done that with Google Maps, you know, like on my my thing, on my New New England Legends thing. We have a map on our site where I can put pins in the Google Map based on the legends now there's also a sense of responsibility this the stories we cover are in general at public places so like a haunted cemetery a uh, a bridge with a weird story attached to it a for a state forest or whatever places that you you can go when you start putting people's privately owned haunted homes you could also sort of open up this this ball of wax problem that didn't exist before so if suddenly everybody has access to this app and people now have a line of cars in front of their house because it's haunted or alleged haunted. There's a downside, too. So someone's someone's got to be judicious in there somewhere. And I don't know who the who, who we hire to be the editor to say, like, all right, this is safe to put in there and this is going to create a problem. But well, but there is, of course, if about. you
1: know you live in a house that has had these problems, there probably could be an opt out feature saying yeah. I don't want my house listed there. And those who don't care and happy to have a tourist attraction, happy to charge 10 bucks per person, whatever, that's one thing. But I think if you do that, I agree with you. The other thing is here is to have locations of UFO sightings. Where have people seen UFOs? We have the capability of mapping that in a way that anybody can have access. And, of course, as you say Google Maps, that's available for Apple Gear, too. So certainly you could use Google Maps as a central point this way Ninety eight percent of all smartphones, iPhones or Android phones will have Google Maps somewhere and they can access this or somebody can develop an app that links to it. But the same thing true with UFO sightings, portal areas, anything, not just the haunted houses, because, as you say, there may be a privacy issue. Sure. We've developed some technology here. Let's develop this further, license it and cash in. OK. <laughs> All right.
6: Sounds good.
2: No, it doesn't because we can't do it ourselves. Well, that's the thing, right? Like you either need the capital to hire the people that are smarter than us to program this kind of thing uh, and then get the word out that it exists because it's only as good as how many people have heard of it. You know, like you need a lot of people contributing to it to make it interesting. You know, for data to get interesting, it needs you need a lot of data points. You know, one or two is not a trend. It's just, you know, just a blip. So um, so, yeah, that's the challenge is like, how do we get this subject that we care about and get people talking about it and contributing to it? And uh, as you guys have seen, no doubt, um, everybody thinks they're the smartest person in the room when it comes to the paranormal. So who's in charge? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, it
1: has to be the same thing as UFO clubs, you know. My UFO club is better than your UFO club. My paranormal club is better than yours. But most ghost hunters tend to be within a specific locality. Sure, I would assume. So you don't have as many rival ghost clubs. Where we'll take New England, maybe we'll take Boston, maybe we'll take Cambridge, and you'll take Jersey City or. Or Edgewater, New Jersey, or Springfield, Vermont, or something. I don't know where I'm coming up with this.
2: Gene, it's, Jeff, it's like West and I- Randall.
1: You're in the
17: paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
17: USA Radio News with
11: Dan Naraki. China has announced sanctions against two members of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom in retaliation for American sanctions levied because of China's human rights violations against ethnic religious minorities. Gail Manchin, the chair of the USC, IRF, and vice chair Tony Perkins have been banned from entering mainland China, Hong Kong, or Macau. The Chinese Foreign Ministry also announced sanctions against a Canadian member of parliament for similar criticisms of the Chinese regime. The USC IRF has been one of the leading voices in a global effort demanding an end to China's abuses against the Uyghur people in the traditionally Muslim region of Xinjiang. And the Department of Justice says that it has charged nearly 500 people with COVID-related fraud. In a statement, the department said that over 140 defendants are facing charges for unemployment insurance fraud, and another 120 have been charged with defrauding the Paycheck Protection Program, intended to help keep small businesses afloat during the pandemic. This is USA Radio News. Former President Donald Trump has some harsh criticism for the current administration over President Biden's handling of illegal immigration. In an interview with Fox News on Saturday, Trump said that he'll likely visit the southern border in the next few weeks because many in the Border Patrol have invited him down. He also criticized President Biden for ending the Remain in Mexico policy that he established with Mexico and ending construction of the border wall when it was so close to completion.
6: The wall is just uh, a few weeks away from being completed. He didn't want to complete it. It took two and a half years to start because uh, the Congress, the Democrats in Congress, Pelosi and everybody, sued us 11 different times. So after we won all the lawsuits we started, they should finish the wall number one, and they should have the stay-in policy reinserted, because if you don't have that, this is going to be a disaster. This is
11: USA Radio News.
5: Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you?
8: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? So
1: we're coming up with a new business here to map paranormal sites so people can find them. I hear silence. Nobody cares. Well, no,
2: no, no. I mean, it's it's funny. You said like, you know, the, the paranormal groups, I thought it was almost like West Side Story. I had this whole idea for like this, this paranormal musical, right? Which, which I would just rip off West Side Story and put into rival ghost hunting groups arguing over whose turf uh, is getting investigated. Years ago, I remember talking to someone at the Rhine Center, which used to be part of Duke University. They were saying, you know, these academic researchers that are looking into ESP and real parapsychology and stuff like that. And, and I said, you know, there's this literal army of paranormal investigators out there. And is there some sort of data that they could collect uniformly, if possible, and contribute to something? The problem is that even academia couldn't really agree on on what the, the data points would be collected and how you could collect it so it's the same. So for example, if we all use the same thermometer and you could take the temperature of a room, you could say okay, we I trust you that it's this temperature, but but that's just one example. And so we had these discussions years ago and it just never got off the ground because who's in charge of it? And and who do you think you are to be the person in charge? Oh,
17: yeah, absolutely. I yeah. um there is no board I I thought maybe I could put one together with UFOs years ago because, you know, that's what it was really needed. And it could be totally free. We've got the Internet. And who wouldn't love this idea? Right. And, well, I got about 2200 members in 22 countries, but, you know, nobody really wanted to do the work. (laughs) Right. It's a great idea. But, you know, I think I'd nominate uh, yourself. No, I don't want to do it. (laughs) Jerome, Jerome Clark, Paul Kingsbury. If you know who he is, Uh, Brian Bonner, uh, you probably know who he is. I I think those four should be on the board for sure.
2: Yeah, no, I, I get it and, and appreciate it. But it, it's funny, too. Like, the longer I've I've been in this, the more I've, I've sort of morphed, you know, and I, I mean, I started in earnest in 1997 when I wrote my first uh, newspaper article about paranormal. It was a feature for Halloween that turned into this whole crazy career, you know, a website and then books and then so on. But since I've been doing this, I find myself more drawn to the story and the history as opposed to like the 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 paranormal research, which is awesome. I love that people are out there with, you know, the, the gear and and all that other stuff and trying to um, contribute to something. But at the same time, my interests sort of lie in in different places. I sometimes the the hardcore paranormal gets mad at me when I use the word legend or story. Uh, however, I don't mean to imply at all that it's not true or that it's not based on something that actually happen, maybe even something otherworldly or, or, you know, ethereal or whatever. But at the same time, whatever that event is, a story takes over from there. And the story is going to change and it's going to draw certain people in and it's going to push other people away. Mm. And that's the part that's just the most interesting to me. I think I'm, I'm just an armchair sociologist, psychologist, and my calling is just more related to that part of it.
17: Well, that makes perfect sense, though, because when you really do look at it objectively, the largest portion of the paranormal ufology included in that is cultural. I mentioned Professor Paul Kingsbury, and that's what he does. He's, he's a professor, and he looks at the paranormal from a geographical perspective and a cultural perspective, and tries to put together patterns, and and that makes perfect sense. We're able to look at it then in a very objective way, and we're able to bring it into the realm of of academia without it being seen as woo. It's like, these (laughs) are real (laughs) beliefs by real people on the world, and if we look at it in a cultural way, we could put it into the humanities instead of the physics department.
2: Oh, I totally agree with that. And and the other thing, too, that's happening is because of the popularity of like so many great podcasts and television shows and movies and stuff like that, the the fringe has moved very much into the mainstream, into the popular culture, which is an opportunity. I mean, there's, there's a lot of downside to it, of course, but there's upside, too, in that. It's not so weird to talk about, and that's the thing, right? That's the discussion is I'm a fan of I'm prom- of promoting the discussion of the topic. So yeah, let's let's how do, you know so so how do we talk about something spiritual without getting in a fist fight because my religion is different than your religion, you know how do we talk about Uh, life after death without it turning into this thing about I'm right and you're wrong about something or or UFOs and what's the government hiding and what other conspiracies are going on. It's just it's people get so drawn into some of these rabbit holes sometimes, uh, especially the last couple of years, you know, like the well, we've we've gotten pretty, (laughs) pretty good question.
17: pretty dug in. (laughs) I've got some ideas, but let's hear yours. How do we do that? What
2: steps should we take? What can we do? The funny thing is, for all of human history, right up until just a few decades ago, like 30 years maybe, 40 on the, on the high end, like we've never been exposed to so much data and information, ever. Go back to like the 1800s. You maybe had a newspaper. Maybe, right? Uh, other than that, the news you got was from the people in your community. Hey, did you hear so-and-so's cow died? right? That's the big news. Uh, and now we are just bombarded with every possible argument and uh, from our phones to our computers, to our televisions, to everything. Uh, as, a, as a species, we don't know how to process all that information. And so, you, know, you like raise our- an interesting point there. I
1: was thinking about this, watching an older sci-fi show, TV show the other day, Babylon Five. Sure. Babylon Five was in the early to mid 1990s. And we have to consider that, the sense of it, so, there are these scenes there where you have, of course, you have the space station. It's a little bit like Deep Space Nine. You have the space station where representatives from five different galactic civilizations meet. And they get involved in all sorts of political byplay and stuff like that. Okay, so there are always these scenes, and I've seen several of them for the first year of the show, where the security guy, Garibaldi, played by the late uh, Jerry Doyle, I think. He was a talk show host also. He's sitting there having his coffee, and he's reading the daily newspaper about mostly Earth-based stuff. And you think, this is the 23rd century. This is our picture of the 23rd century presented in the mid-1990s. And they're reading a newspaper. And you think... We're already in the 21st century, and the newspaper is mostly passe. We haven't gone another 200 years. We are so inundated with information, we can't keep up with it. And what often happens is that people, therefore, focus on stuff that simply amplifies their own view. They live in a bubble. There's too much out there. There's too much out there to embrace other points of view. I mean, you could literally show somebody evidence that C is really C, not Q. But they'll still believe it's Q. And I'm not yeah. talking about the creature, the creature, this race of superpowered people in Star Trek Next Generation. I mean, that's how it is. And you think of how simple it was on Babylon 5, where the security chief could sit there, have his morning coffee before getting on with whatever he has to do, breaking up disputes among alien races, a metaphor, of course, for immigration and everything right now in the 21st century. But still, he's reading the daily newspaper.
17: Oh, yeah, B5 is awesome. It's an excellent series. Garibaldi's character is very interesting. Oh, yeah. And you have people there
1: who you've seen on other shows who come over. Oh, yeah. Like the character of Bester, who's a psychop. And guess who the actor who plays him is? The guy who played the original Chekhov on Star Trek.
17: Absolutely. So another
1: episode there of Babylon 5 where David McCallum, who's now, of course, he's a guy in his 80s now and he appears on NCIS, but we remember him from The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Here, he plays somebody who, by the way, at the end of the episode, he's arrested as a criminal. Didn't make it past the one episode, but they deliberately get these people in these shows. They did that was Stargate SG1, where you saw people from Star Trek who come on the show and do something like Robert Ricardo played a major role in the last half of the series and Stargate Atlantis. He was the holographic doctor from Star Trek Voyager. Anyway, I don't know why we're talking about this. Jeff, Gene, and Randall, you're in The Paracast. <laughs>
7: for listening to GCN. Visit gcnlive.com today.
1: Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, theparacast.plus prices are just dollar fifty a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about.
4: effective. Do you want to give you and your loved ones premium nutrition right now? Hi, I'm Jamel Bookaboo from TeamGaday.com and the GCN Youngevity health team. Get your premium nutrition formulated by world-renowned naturopathic doctor Dr. Joel Wallach at wholesale or also become a distributor and earn income while supporting this broadcast. Go to TeamGaday.com via the shopping cart or contact form and I'll get back to you with support personally. That's TeamGaday.com with Younggevity
12: Get clean. Call now and learn more. 800-296-1252. 800-296-1252. 800-296-1252. 800-296-1252.
5: I tried other brands, but I came back to my sunshine.
12: For the best hot or cold pain relief, get the best.
18: Get a Sunny Bay heating pad.
19: Sometimes life can be a pain in the neck. Or back. Or shoulder.
18: And the best relief for that pain is a Sunny Bay heating pad. Did you know that the American College of Physicians said that one of the best ways to treat muscle pain is heat therapy? Sunny Bay heating pads are handmade with high quality, can be used at home or at work, and have a lifetime 100% positive rating on both Amazon and Etsy.
19: Why take another pill?
18: Many people use our Sunny Bay heating pads alone and got rid of the neck pain. Long-distance travel or long hours in front of a computer can take its toll
9: on your body.
19: Our homegrown small business tries to help people just like us. That's why we design and test our handmade products with great care before we introduce them to the public. You can easily find Sunny Bay heating pads on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com and search for Sunny Bay heating pads. Marie D. Jones, the author of This Book is from the Future, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: I think part of it is bringing up the issue of the fact that we are so immersed in a sea of information, a lot of it being patently, provably false that we really even don't know where to go with any of it. I mean, even people, as you would agree, Jeff, who are ghost hunters kind of live in a narrow reality of what a ghost is supposed to be in the UFO field, aside from shows like the Paracast, where we take you beyond the basics. Okay, E.T. is here, and let's admit it. It may be a lot more complicated than that. Bigfoot, anything, we live in our bubbles. So how does one get out of that? Do you think about that, Jeff?
2: Yeah, I did get out of it (laughs) on Kilimanjaro.
1: Well, that would be a rather extreme measure, I would think. But I understand the point.
2: No, but at the same time, like you don't have to go to Kilimanjaro. I mean, you could camp by a lake for a week. You could, you know, like do whatever, whatever it is that, that resets you. The biggest benefit I got was getting unplugged, was stepping away. And I'll tell you, uh, I never sleep with a phone in my room ever. I shut it off and it stays downstairs. That's a, a rule of our house. Never at the at the table when we're eating a meal, no no phones uh, allowed. And so one of the things I really try to do, and it's hard when you're self-employed and you're you're working all hours of the day and night, is to make sure I shut off my computer, I shut off my phone, I just disconnect, especially before bed, at least an hour, you know, like have this time of quiet, no TV, nothing, you know, to just sort of like reset myself. I'm thoroughly impressed. I, I think that that
17: is so important to be absent of screen time. Some yeah. screen-free time every day, you know, no phones at the dinner table. I have my ringers off here all the time, or at least rarely do I put them on. But anyways, please continue. I think, I think that's something more people should do.
2: Like when I travel and I'm staying in a hotel, I do have my phone on and right by my head on the nightstand should I have an emergency at home, right? So my family would call. And I don't sleep well. Because that damn thing is right there and it's on and it buzzes a news alert or something. And oh, what was that? You know, just enough to bring you out of sleep. And I still hike. I hike, you know, different hills around here, just day hikes. It, it's very resetting to to kind of get out there, just be in nature for a little bit. Just walk among the trees, walk in a park, walk by a pond, a lake, anything, anything that gets you disconnected And let you calm down and sort of reset. Fifteen minutes, a half hour makes a big difference if you can do it. I I recognize we all live in lives where that's not always possible. Some days are just that busy. But if you make time for it, it's part of that self-care that's so important. Years ago when I was I weighed fifty pounds more than I do now and I decided to become a runner just to sort of feel better. That changed my life quite a bit. And now no matter how hectic my days are, I make sure I make it time, you know, at least forty-five minutes for running at least three days a week. It's good for my heart. It's good for my body. I sleep better. Those kind of things that get me away from information and just doing what a human does, you know, moving my body, clearing my mind.
1: We go halfway here in the Steinberg household because it's just me and Barbara. Our son is off in Madrid and we have the dog. We put the dog away in another room. We sit down and we have dinner in front of the TV set because that's the form of entertainment. Catch up on the show because I don't get to watch TV quite as much as I do. And I take my iPhone, I stick it on the night table, but I put my reading glasses down there, unless there's something really important, I don't mean like a ping, like a ring that somebody's trying to reach me, and it's not a spam call, I will ignore it. So it's halfway. She'll ignore her iPad. It's halfway. Maybe it's not what you would do. I could not turn off my phone. Once having gotten used to the iPhone back in 2008, I couldn't get away from it. So that's something that maybe someday I will. But up until then, I had my laptop computer, my MacBook Pro, whatever. And before going to bed at night, I take it to bed with me. I go through, check my email, catch up on everything, stick it away back into my office area and ignore it. The reason I got the iPhone is I didn't have to play with the macbook pro anymore i had this tiny little device where i could consult it for email but i still try to force myself away from it for the evening i don't really look at it from the time i go to bed to the time i get up in the morning nobody believes me
2: we got to do what we got to do
17: right i don't even own a cell phone and that for that reason i know if i got one that would be it it would be end up glued to the side of my head You know, I'd end up with, you know, I guess these days some kind of earbuds or whatever. But but getting back to what we were talking about before the break and went on this this complete tangent, we were talking about, well, you know, what can people do to unify the field when there are so many different views and viewpoints? You started to talk about there's there's so much data that people have to sift through. Okay, so what is your solution? How do we deal with that?
2: Yeah. How do we get people comfortable and confident in contributing to something uh, that they know that they're they're a part of this thing and it's OK that they're not in, in charge of it? And so, again, back then, this was over 10 years ago, I was looking to like the Ryan Center, like, what are the data points? Can we even agree on that? Just give us a few. When you're out there doing your investigation, do whatever it is you do. We're not going to tell you how to do it. But while you're there, collect these five pieces of information in this specific way. And contribute it to this sort of centralized repository. Can we get these things? And I think a lot of people would be willing to do that, to be part of something. The problem is we couldn't figure out what those data points were. After that, there's the time and expense of of developing the repository and then making sure people are using it right. I still think it's a good idea. It's a solid idea. So who do you get to agree on those points? Who do you get to build it? How do you get the word out that, hey, we're doing this? without looking like you're trying to be king of the paranormal or queen of the paranormal. That's the challenge.
17: QFOS in the ufology sector has done a pretty good job of that for a number of years. They came up with the UFO experience and they defined what a sighting was in the various levels of sightings and yep. types of sightings all the way through to CE5. And then Greer came along and hijacked that. And everybody else came along and decided to say, well, we're going to think about it this way. And now when you say QFOs to some UFOs, they go, what? Who are they? They've got a major database of all kinds of sightings that have been cataloged exactly that way. But if nobody's going to use it and everybody wants to think, well, I'm just going to do it my way because, well, that's what works for me. Then what do we end up with in terms of a unified field?
1: Well, the UFO field has been trying to unify itself since the 1950s. When a group of former teen ufology people formed the Congress of Scientific Ufology And the National UFO Conference, it was designed to serve as a counterpoint to events that would cover just the contactees. They'd have their wild and woolly meetings about meeting blonde Venusians. And we would try to talk about the field in a scientific way. What we thought was scientific, none of us were scientists of all. That's where it went. It never went anywhere. Hey, I'd like to maybe pick up on this for after the PowerCast, where you're going to continue with us, Jeff Belanger. But right now, our listeners want to know, they're waiting with bated breath. Tell them where they can find more of what you have to offer. I understand you've got autographed books, so why don't you tell us about that quickly?
2: Yeah, so uh, The Call of Kilimanjaro, is it's my first memoir, and it's available wherever books are sold, but in these strange times, we can't do book signings. If anyone wants to email me at Killy, K-I-L-I, at jeffbelanger.com, j-e-f-f-b-e-l-a-n-g-e-r.com. I'll send you the first chapter as a PDF. And then there's a link where I, I actually went to the publisher's warehouse and autographed 500 copies. If people want a signed copy, you can get it directly from the publisher. Uh, that email, I'll, I'll reply with a promo code. And, and yeah, and appreciate any support. And thank you guys for letting me talk about this uh, very personal story for me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share it because it, it meant a lot to me.
1: Well, it meant a lot to us to have you on the show and talking about it, really. We also can be found on Twitter. If you are into Twitter, if you're into Facebook, you can find us there. We don't do TikTok and all the other stuff. We also offer branded merchandise. Speaking of offering things, if you go to the PowerCast.shop, the PowerCast.shop, we have four different logos. Choose the one you want, then choose the T-shirt, whatever, all sizes available. You'll find something likely that fits you. We also have the PowerCast Plus, where we offer the After the PowerCast podcast, a special show with added content. Like Jeff's going to continue with us on that episode. Also, we offer this show free of the network ads with enhanced audio. All for prices beginning at a buck fifty a week. How about that? Four bucks a month. Special prices. For more information, go to theparacast.plus. Remember also, if you order five years or a lifetime, we give you a free coupon code for The Phenomenon, the James Fox UFO documentary, three hours of extra material while supplies last. Theparacast.plus. Jeff Belandrew, glad to have you come on and share your experiences on the Paracast. Thank you.